Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So in the previous chapter, the Rebbe asked the question, how is it that we inherit our Jewishness? Obviously, Judaism is not religion. You don't inherit religion. Just because your parents are religious doesn't make you automatically religious. The Christians today are not the biological children of the original Christians. Why is it that because Abraham had a love affair with Hashem, therefore automatically every Jew, any biological child is born to a Jewish mother, it goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, is automatically Jewish. How is it? And then he asked, what is the root of this um, love that every Jew has towards Hashem, that every Jew inherits towards God? And he asked, what is its content? You know, when you love something, you love, you look, you're searching for something, you want something. So what is this love that every Jew inherits for Hashem, for God? What is this love? What are we looking for? What are we searching for? And we know that love is just one aspect. There's also awe, fear, like the two wings, the balance. So where is the fear in this love? Every Jew inherits a love to God, but where, where, is, where does the fear come in? This awe, the sense of awe of God. And in the previous chapter, he explained that every Jew inherits this love to Hashem, this connection to Hashem. We inherit it from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because to them, Judaism, the relationship to God, it wasn't just a love of fear that they have with God. It became part of the core, part of their essence. They became like a chariot to God. A chariot is egoless, has no ego. The chariot is whatever the driver wants to drive the chariot. That's where the chariot goes. The chariot just becomes a tool in the hands of the driver. So they became so inseparable with God that they became one with God, inseparable. Therefore, their whole being became God. And therefore, just like a person's your humanity, right, is automatically inherited. Even a thousand generations from now, a human being will never give birth to a monkey. Because that's your essence. That's who you are. How you behave is one thing. But who you are, that's not something that's acquired. That, that's your essence. So to our Jewishness, to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, their Jewishness became their very core and their very essence. And therefore, automatically, all their children inherit, will inherit this Jewish soul, this Jewish connection. And then he says, what is the root? What is the source of this connection to Hashem? So he says, this is the level of wisdom that each and every Jewish soul has. We have a level of wisdom within our soul. And what is the level of wisdom? The level of wisdom is, it's almost like an, an intuition to intuitive, intuitively sense God. And he said, it's not like, it's not only like the the sense of intuition in general where the creative ability, the creative mind, when you're puzzling on a certain idea and suddenly, out of the blue, you get this flash, this brilliant flash, this eureka moment, oh, I got it. What do you get? 
you don't understand it yet, you don't grasp it yet, you can't articulate it, you can't explain it. It's just a feeling, a feeling that you get, it's okay. I understand, I, I know the answer. Of course, you have to digest it and you have to, you have to then articulate it and explain it. But in general, you just have a, a feeling that now you get it. That's the elementary level of wisdom of the creative mind. Then there is a higher level of wisdom within which a person sees, like a person sees something. When you see something, when you see that the sun is shining, Einstein can come to you and prove to you with irrefutable logic that right now it must be pitch, pitch dark outside. It's impossible the sun will be shining. And you're looking out the window and you see the sun shining. Would you doubt for a moment that the sun is shining? Not for a moment. I see the sun. Your logic is irrefutable. But I see the sun. So I can't argue with you and I can't explain it to you and I can't have nothing to say. But I see the sun. It's not about me. Logic, the logical mind, the analytical mind, the left brain, that is me. I understand. I grasp. I digest. I... When you see something, it's not about you. You forget about yourself. You're lost in, in the scenery. Like sometimes you're, you're mesmerized. You see the seven wonders of the world. It's like, it's like you forget about yourself. It's like you're just, you're just amazed. You're in a trance. You're just, you're just drawn in. You're grabbed by the scenery because it's not you. When you see, you see the whole thing in one, in one, in one felt swoop. You can have thousands of details. You just see the whole. You don't see the details. You, see the, you don't see the trees. You see the forest. That's seeing. Because seeing, it's not about you. It's really forgetting about yourself. You see the thing itself. But nevertheless, even when you see something, it's you that, that's doing the seeing. A Jew inherits, when we talk about the level of wisdom within the Jewish soul, the level of wisdom within the Jewish soul is able to sense godliness, God himself, the infinite, and the way God sees himself pure, undiluted. And therefore, because every Jew has this sense, almost like a sixth sense, we see godliness, we sense godliness. It has nothing to do with us. It's just something that we inherit. We inherit a Jewish neshama, a Jewish soul. So we have this ability to sense godliness. Where do we find the expression for this? The Jew's ability to martyrs, Jewish martyr. Look at the difference in Jewish martyrdom. The Akeda and the Al-Qaeda. <laughs> Jewish martyrdom, it's not about yourself. When a person is ready to die, he's ready to die because in a crude way he's getting his 70 virgins or because he's getting a share of the world to come. There's a calculation. You're ready to die because I'm doing something noble, I'm doing something holy, I'm doing something special. Avram was ready to martyr his child. Every fiber of Avram's being, every bone in his body screamed against it. So much so, the Torah says he had to send it, he had to force his hand with an, to take the knife and, because he couldn't do it. How, he was the kindest person, the most compassionate person. How could he with his own hands, mere hands, take and destroy everything he built up for the last 134 years? He went through nine tests. He was ready to sacrifice himself. He was thrown into the fires. He built up a following. He built up Judaism. All of his entire future was in the hands of Yitzchak. And now Hashem asked of him to offer Yitzchak as a sacrifice. And that's why he didn't pray for him. 
because it wasn't a punishment. When Hashem told Avram that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a punishment. So Avram prayed. He handled. But here, Hashem didn't tell him, I'm going to hurt Isaac. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Just like the idea of a sacrifice. Why does the Torah allow a human being to eat? What right do we have to eat the animal? Why is his life any less than our life? What right do we have to slaughter or to eat an animal? And the answer is, if you don't believe in God, then you don't have a right. But if you believe in God, then you understand that the, the life force of the animal is being elevated through our eating. When we eat, and we make a blessing before we eat, and we eat in a disciplined way, and we eat kosher, and we have in mind that we're eating in order to serve God, to give us the strength to serve God. So it's not about slaughtering the animal, it's elevating the animal. The animal evolves into a higher life form. And then when we think about Hashem, we take this food and we transform it into something holy. We offer it like a sacrifice to Hashem. And just like the difference between the animal and the human being, so how much more so the difference between physical life and when Hashem asked Avram to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. It's like when the soul of a righteous person dies, it says his soul is like a sacrifice. And Malach Michal, the angel Michal, is off, offers his soul as a sacrifice on the altar, in the heavenly altar above. So the idea of a sacrifice, what appears to us to be death, what appears to us to be something that we can't comprehend, on a higher level, it's actually an elevation. Just like the animal life, in comparison to the human life, is insignificant, insignificant in comparison to the potential that man has to become divine, and to be aware of the divine, and to elevate the animal into something divine. And therefore, it's not about slaughtering the animal, it's about elevating the animal. So too, in the righteous soul, in the soul of the tzaddik, when he dies, if God forbid it's a premature death, Hashem is elevating, it's like a sacrifice, and he's, he achieves an atonement not only for himself, but for his entire generation. So even though to us it's inexplicable and on the human level, it's like the ultimate tragedy, but from a higher point of view, it's an elevation. The soul of the tzaddik is elevated to a higher form of life, to the afterlife. So when Hashem told Avram, he says, offer him as a sacrifice. So it's not Avram to pray. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not about hurting Isaac. It's not about... It's not a punishment. It's offer him as a sacrifice. And therefore, Avram didn't pray for him. But the question is, by offering him as a sacrifice, he would be destroying everything he built up, everything he invested. He invested his whole life. Everything he dreamed of, everything he invested in was, a, was about to go down the drain. And for what? To prove what? No one would even know about it. Hashem told him, go up the mountain alone. You think anyone would even believe Avram when he came down the mountain alone? Yeah, I slaughtered Isaac, sure. You couldn't even hurt a fly. You slaughtered Isaac. If Hashem would tell him, go downtown, call a press conference, show your dedication to God, okay. At least he would gain something out of it. Here he gain nothing. Now what's the point? What's the purpose? And not only that, Hashem made Avram a partner. When it came to Sodom and Gomorrah, Hashem says, I'm not going to do anything in my world without first telling, telling uh, Avram. 
So as a partner, in other words, he was an equal partner with God because before Avram came in the sea, no one really knew about God. God's name became almost obliterated from the face of the earth. Everyone worshipped idols, were pagan. And Avraham publicized Hashem's name. So Avram knew who he was and his accomplishment, his achievement, that he was a partner with God. He was a general, five-star general. So he could have told Hashem and said, listen, Hashem, you know, this is, uh, this is no good for business. <laughs> As a partner, I have, I'm obligated to tell you this is no good. What do you want me to do here? And you know what? He would have been right because Hashem never intended him to kill Yitzchak or to offer Yitzchak as an offering. He was just testing him, but he would have failed the test. And we would never have heard of Avraham, because that would have been the end of the Jewish people. That would have taken off ground. It was that test that established the Jewish people, because it's that test that showed what a Jew is all about, what Jewish martyrdom is all about. Avraham had no agendas. After 137 years old, after serving God for 134 years, dedicated, devoted, building up Judaism and building up something that's that's hopefully going to last forever, that will last forever. And one split, one split second, Hashem tells him, take everything that you've built and go contrary to your nature. Your whole essence is kindness. And make the ultimate sacrifice. Your child that you had at 100 years old, imagine what a miracle baby. And I'm asking you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Avram woke up early, eagerly, excited, with joy. He ran and he was ready to do it. Unlike Adam, who didn't listen, Hashem gave him a simple instruction, don't eat. He ate. Here Hashem gave him the ultimate instruction, unhesitated. Avram was a soldier. And what motivated him? There was no logic, there was no rhyme, there was no reason. On the contrary, Everything, his whole logic was screaming. This is crazy. This is absurd. This is ridiculous. I can give you a thousand and one reasons why it can't be. You know, and he probably would have been right because Nashem never had a mind. And what are you doing to your wife, Sarah? And what are you doing to Isaac? And, and what's going to be with Judaism? And but Avraham served God unconditionally. It's not about me. We don't understand Hashem. He remembered, listen, we're living in God's world. Life is a miracle, existence is a miracle, everything we have, success is a miracle. Our spouse, our children, everything we have is a miracle. We don't own anything. We live in God's world and we live by His terms. Even if it's totally inexplicable to us. Every fiber in Avram's being was screaming, what is this all about? I don't understand this. But it doesn't matter. This is what Hashem wants. I don't understand it. So, we don't worship God conditionally. Oh, what can God do for me today? If it makes sense to me, if it fits my comfort zone, if it fits my criteria, if, if it fits in nicely, then okay, then it's okay. But the moment I don't understand, and the moment it makes no sense to me, and my mind doesn't grasp, and, I, and it's inexplicable to me, I'm out of here. That's religion. That's not Judaism. Judaism is there's no ego, there's no agenda. It's not that I see God I sense God. It's the wisdom that each and every Jewish soul has is that we, we have a piece of the divine inside of us. And therefore we see God on His terms. And if this is what God wants, even though it, it, it makes no sense to me, on any human level it makes no sense to me, not emotionally, not psychologically, and not mentally, and not practically, 
unhesitating. Avram went with the same enthusiasm, the same excitement. Everything that he's been doing till now for the last 134 years. He says, Hashem, Hineni, I'm ready. What do you want me to do? It's not about me. It's about you. And that was the ultimate test. And that's when he became a Jew. Forever and ever. And that's when Hashem made a covenant. That you and your children. This is Jewish martyr. This is what distinguishes Judaism from all other religions and mysticism. This is what makes us Jewish. That each and every Jew has a miniature Avram inside of them. Has that soul, that ability of self-sacrifice. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from, and throughout Jewish history, it's a fact. When push came to shove, in the moment of truth, a Jew was ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. Even Jews who were felt worthless, who acted, lived a worthless life. Thieves. When push came to shove, I'm a Jew and I'm ready to die for my Jewishness. Nothing. It's not even, and it's not something that they had to meditate on and reflect and come to a decision. It's worthwhile for me to give up my life. No, Jews love life. We love life. We're not looking to sacrifice our life. We celebrate life. The Torah says you have to violate all 613 mitzvot, except the three cardinal mitzvot, just to sustain life for one moment. So we love life. We're not looking for the afterlife. And yet, without any hesitation, if push came to shove, it's not an option for a Jew to be disconnected from God. It's not an option. This is our reality. We have no other reality. This is, this is reality. Hashem to us. It's so crystal clear to us. This is reality to us. It's, imp- it's not even a possibility for us to be disconnected from that. And this is what makes a Jew holy. It's this holiness, holy soul. It's this ability that we have. This capacity that we have. And the wisdom, the wisdom of our soul. It's a capacity to know God. Un- unadulterated. To know God as God is. In His infinite glory and therefore to take Hashem on his terms not on our terms to trust him and to realize we're living in God's world and everything in this world is God's and therefore we go by his rules not by ours and of course Hashem never intended Avram to sacrifice himself he was testing and he passed the test with flying colors it was the tenth and ultimate and final test and so much so that each and every morning we repeat the story of that Kedah. We're so astonished. Till today, 3,800 years later, we're still astonished about Avram's readiness to sacrifice. This is what Jewish martyrdom is all about. So we, he, the Alter Rebbe answered the first two questions. He answered how we inherit this love that each and every Jew has for Hashem. And what is the root and the source of this love? Is it the root and the source of this love is the wisdom, the level of wisdom that each and every Jew has in their soul. In the next chapter, we're about to read, chapter 19, he's going to explain what is the content of this love. What, what is a Jew looking for? You love something, you want something. What do you want? What are you looking for? And how does it include also the sense of awe? So, let's begin this chapter, 258. To further elucidate the nature of the hidden love, it's necessary to clarify the meaning of the verse, the soul, the shamer of man, is a candle of God. This means that the souls of Jews who are called man, as our sages remark, you the Jewish people are called man, are by way of illustration like the flame of a candle, whose nature it is always to flicker upwards. For the flame of the fire intrinsically seeks to part from the wick that holds it and to unite with its source above. 
in the universal element of fire which is in the sublunar sphere, as is explained in Eitz Chaim. The four elements, earth, water, air and fire, are so positioned that the higher and more ethereal elements surround and encompass the lower coarser elements. Earth is the coarsest of the elements, is therefore physically the lowest. Water, the next highest element, should by rights surround and be located above the earth. It is only because of God's kindness that the earth is above the waters. As it's written, he spreads the earth over the waters, for his kindness is everlasting. The element of air is higher than water, and therefore surrounds it. Fire, the highest element, surrounds the entire atmosphere, and is found in the sublunar sphere. The flame's constant drawing upwards thus represents its desire to unite with its source. Although thereby, by parting from the wick and becoming part of its source, it would be extinguished and would emit no light at all here below, also above in its source its identity would be lost within that of its source. That is, it would cease to be a luminary. For since a candle is ineffective in illuminating its environment and surrounded by the overwhelmingly greater brilliance of daylight, surely within the element of fire itself its identity is completely nullified. The flame striving to unite with its source cannot therefore be construed as seeking a higher form of existence. Furthermore, this desire for unification with its source, which can be achieved only through self-annihilation, defies the axiom that Every existing being desires its continued existence. Logically, then, the flame ought not to draw upward to its source. Yet this is what it desires by nature, that is, it constantly strains upwards as though this were its conscious desire. Why is the neshama, our neshama, our Jewish soul, why is it compared to a flame? And that's why we light a candle for neshama, a yardside candle, you always light a neshama. Because from all the four elements, the basic elements, the flame is the most spiritual of all the elements. And that is why we see that a flame is different. You can't have two bodies of water or two, two bodies of air. They clash called a storm but you can light a thousand candles from one flame and not only it doesn't extinguish the flame on the contrary the flame is strengthened by it there's a flexibility what is the the strongest drive in everything that exists in this world in the physical world the strongest drive the most powerful drive is the w will to live self-preservation to continue Everything from the amoeba, the amoeba on up, is pushing to preserve itself. In other words, ego. It's all about ego. It's all about I. Ego. Self-preservation. The exception is a flame, a candle. The candle is not looking to preserve itself. What's the nature of a candle? The nature of a candle is to extinguish itself. You have to literally force the fire down. Otherwise, the candle just wants to be absorbed in its source. Put a little flame next to a torch. It'll leap up and become absorbed in the torch. Even though it'll become indistinguishable in the torch, it's not about ego. Which is why you can light a thousand candles from one flame. 
everything else that has ego has identity. You can't have two winds together. You can't have two bodies of water together. But the the the, the candle flame fire is the most spiritual. It's physical, but it's the most spiritual. And that's why whenever you want to bring an example, you want to understand something that's spiritual, energy, pure energy, fire, flame, is the closest we can get to help us understand the nature of something spiritual. It, it draws upward. It's drawn towards its source. That's why everything else, the power of gravity, it falls down. It wants to exist. It wants to continue its existence. Ego, I, self, identity. While the flame is just the opposite. The flame wants to be absorbed in its source. It wants to lose itself in its source. It wants to extinguish its identity. It wants to become one with its source. And that's why it's constantly leaping up. And that's its nature. What is the idea? What is nature? Nature, it's not a word that's found in the Bible. The 24 books of the Torah. The word Teva. But nature, it's like an imprint. Something that's imprinted. Like a, a tabat, a ring, an imprint, a seal. Nature imprints itself. It becomes the nature of everything. Its nature characterizes something that's really inexplicable. We don't understand it, but this is its nature. Science, what we call nature, we don't understand it. We don't understand electricity. We can describe it. But we don't understand it. It's a mystery to us, but we can describe it. It's a reality. It's a fact. It's a nature. It doesn't expl- nature doesn't explain anything. It's just a description. That's really what nature is. It's just a description. This is what it does. How it does it. Why it does it. We don't know. But this is its nature. So this is the nature of a flame. It's the nature of a candle. It's inexplicable. Because everything really wants to exist. Everything wants to continue to exist. Why would a flame jump up against, its, against this desire to continue its existence? And why would it lose itself and ex- become extinguished in the process? And yet that's its nature. It almost can't help itself. That, that's what a flame and energy is all about. And that's why the neshama is compared to a flame. Just as a candle constantly seeks to reunite with its source, so also the neshama of a Jew and also the levels of ruach and nefesh. Although the verse states that the neshama of man is a candle of God, this comparison is not limited to one within whom the highest soul level of neshama is actively revealed. The word neshama is used here in the broader sense of soul, which includes also the levels of ruach and nefesh. Thus, the analogy of the candle extends also to those within whom only the lower soul level of ruach and nefesh is revealed. The soul naturally desires and yearns to separate itself and depart from the body, and to unite with its origin and source in God, blessed be he, who is a fountainhead of all life. The soul whose very essence is life is thus especially drawn to God, the source of all life, and desires to sever its connection with the body, which hinders its ability to become one with God. Though thereby it would become null and naught, and its identity would there, in its source, be completely nullified, with nothing at all remaining of its original essence and self, yet this is its will and desire by its nature. This is what characterizes the Jewish soul. That the soul, the Jewish soul, is egoless. It's not about ego. The driving force behind a true soul. What, what is the driving force? What are we looking for in life? What do we want? It's not about ego. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not about finding meaning. Meaning is, that how can God make my life more meaningful? What can God do for me? 
It's to elevate, to enhance, to amplify my being, my existence. That's not the yearning, that's not the driving force of the soul. The yearning and the driving force of the soul is to lose itself, to become one with God. It's not about yourself. It's what can I do for God. It's to, not to be self-centered or I-centered. And by the way, I-centered doesn't necessarily mean being coarse and vulgar. Thinking about money, power, fame, indulgence. I-centered could also be religion. It's also I-centered. The sheer I'm going to have in the world to come. What can God do for me? My reward. Eternal reward. Eternal ego. Eternal I. The whole world to come could be one big ego game. That's not the motivation of a Jew. The motivation of a Jew is to serve Hashem. Like the Baal Shem Tev, the Baal Shem Tev, in the story related on Pesach, the Baal Shem Tev once promised that a childless couple, I promise you, I swear to you, that next year this time you are going to have a, you're going to be holding a baby, you're going to have a child. And at that moment, a voice, you heard a voice from heaven, a heavenly voice, he says, this couple cannot have a child. And since you defied the laws of nature, and even the divine laws, and you decree that they have to have a child, and the, the Torah says, when a tzaddik decrees, God obeys. So because of you, God had to bend the laws of nature. Therefore, you lost your share in the world to come. Now, the average Jew would be shocked. What was the Bashemta's response? Bashemta says, wonderful. Mazel now I can serve God without any ulterior motive. I know that I'm not getting a share in the world to come. I can serve God just in order to serve God. Because I love God and have a relationship with God. And just to serve God, I'm not getting, I'm, I'm not getting gaining anything. I'm not getting anything in return. I'm not expecting anything in return. It's just because I love God, just to serve God for God's sake. What is that all about? This is what a Jewish neshama is all about. It's not about ego. It's not what am I going to get out of this. I expect something in return. The neshama is God-centered. What can I do for Hashem? There's no ego. No trace of ego. It's not about I. So that's the analogy. That's why we light a yardside licht. We light a candle. A candle, the neshama is compared to a candle. Just like the candle jumps, leaps up. The candle yearns. It wants to leave the physical, the material. It yearns to go up, to become absorbed in its source, to lose itself in its source, lose its identity in its source. So to the neshama wants to, it's not about I. It wants to become absorbed in its source. It wants to become one, one with Hashem. And this is called nature. Because nature is something that's inexplicable. You can't explain it. It's not a logical thing. Logic dictates that you have to, your existence should continue. You have to further your existence. Self-preservation. Ego. I. Logic doesn't dictate that you should cease to exist. No. The whole framework of logic is based on I. I understand. I get it. It elevates me. It inspires me. It's meaningful to me. It amplifies me. It turns me into something eternal. I become an eternal being. The I, the, 
cannot dictate, the logical mind cannot grasp something that's beyond the eye. There is no eye. That I should be motivated by pure selflessness? That's an impossible. Ultimately, there's always a selfish motive. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a healthy ego. A person is motivated. He wants to become something. He wants to be somebody. And he realizes that to be a somebody doesn't mean I have to be coarse and vulgar. It means to be a somebody. I should have content. I should have meaning. I should become spiritual. I should... But ultimately, even being selfless also could be motivated by I. What do I gain from it? It gives me a certain satisfaction. It gives me a certain pleasure. But pure love, not, not asking anything in return, this is something that's not logical. It's not within the frame, our frame of reference, not within the human frame of reference. It's an impossibility. And yet this is the neshama that every Jew inherits. Because we're called the chosen people, not the choosing people. It's not something that we created, it's not religion because we have the level of wisdom of the Jewish soul that, that's able to receive and absorb the essence of God. We're able to see God, and therefore, that's our motivation. We have no other motivation. Even though we're going to be totally... We want to be absorbed within God and lose our sense of I, separation, of ego, of identity. This is something that makes no sense. It's inexplicable. It's natural. And that's our nature. It feels so natural to us. It's inexplicable. It's astonishing. Which is why the nations of the world have been studying us for 3,800 years and they still can't figure us out. Because it's inexplicable. It makes no sense. We don't fit in. There's no people in the world that are motivated, that behave this way. It's inexplicable. But this is the core, the essence of a Jew. This is what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish nisham, a holy soul. And every Jew has the same nisham. The simplest Jew, the cobbler, the tailor, the shu- has the same holy soul. That spark. We call the pintaliyid. That divine spark within us. Equally to Moses and the greatest rabbi, mystic and scholar. And this is natural. It comes natural to us. It's not logical. It's inexplicable. There's no explanation for nature. It's a description. This is the way it is. Why does the candle flicker upwards and wants to disappear and be absorbed and lose itself, lose its identity? We can't explain it. It makes no sense. It goes contrary to our whole human experience. Everything in this world wants to self-preserve, self-preservation, ego. But that's the reality. That's a candle. That's a flame. That's its nature. And it can't help it. That's its nature. So too, the Jewish soul can't even help himself. The Jew cannot be disconnected from God. It's not a logical, rational choice that a Jew makes. Oh, I would rather be connected to God and I'm going to martyr myself rather than deny my Jewishness and bow down to the idol. You don't need explanations. You don't need need convincing. It's, It's an impossibility. The Jew cannot, I cannot deny my Jewishness. It's who I am. It's my essence. And therefore, I would rather give everything up. Give up my life. I love life. Give everything up. Just because I am Jewish. To affirm my Jewishness. Affirm my connection to God. Just like Avram was ready to give everything up. Everything. 
It's inexplicable. It makes no sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. But that's the reality. It's a description. That's, and that comes so natural to us. This is the Jewish nature. Because we have an neshama, we have a holy soul. And every Jew has this potential, the readiness to give up his life for Hashem. And it's not about giving up your life. It's about, it's about life. Because for a Jew to be disconnected from God is like taking a recess from life for a minute. Imagine someone tells you, just, just one second, take a recess from life. There's no such thing. You take a recess from life for one second, it's all over. Walk off the face of the earth, just for a second, right? It's not an option. For a Jew, it's not an option. For a Jew to bow down to the idol, to deny my Jewishness, to disconnect myself from God, that is walking off the face of the earth. That is death. That is unplugging. That is taking a a recess from life for a moment. Hashem, that's life. That's reality. There is no other reality. And it's not because we see and we understand and we have this vision. It's because we, Hashem, just, we sense Hashem. Hashem is just within us. We have that wisdom. We just have that intuition. We just have that sense. And therefore, it's not an option. All there is, ultimately, we realize all there is is God. There is nothing else. So how can I unplug from God for a moment? There is no other reality. It's like unplugging from reality for a moment, walking off the face of the earth, taking a recess from life. It's simply, it's simply not an option. That's our nature. It's so deeply rooted inside of us. It's not something superficial and external, like clothes you take on, you take off. It's our nature. It's imprinted in us. It's embedded in us. It's who we are. That's our description. That's the Jewish neshama. That's what makes us holy. And it's not something that we accomplish. We have nothing to do with it. <laughs> There's no human fingerprints on it. We're just born, because we're born to a Jewish mother. We have that holy soul. We have that neshama. We inherited that neshama from our patriarchs, our matriarchs. Every Jew, till the end of time, a thousand generations, Right? Now we're, we're, we're 100 generations from 100, 200 generations. Forever and ever, a Jew will always give birth to a Jew. It could be a self-hating Jew. It could be a... It doesn't matter. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And the Jew has the same neshama, like the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar who davens three times a day and studies 18 hours of Torah a day. Same neshama. The exact same neshama. Same absolute neshama with the same nature. It's there. Hidden, but it's there. So that he's going to explain later on in the chapter. And first, you can ask even more so. You can ask the question that there are Jews, yes, 90 or 95% of Jews in the moment of truth would rather give up their lives than deny their Jewishness. But there were Jews who did convert Christianity, and there were Jews who, um, there were Jews who actually turned against the Jewish people. You know, not only they converted to Christianity, they became the worst informers and our, our worst nightmare. You know, your worst enemies is from within you. Firstly, a person always has choice. This is your nature, but God gives us a choice. We can go against our nature, violently oppose our nature. So we ha- always have that freedom of choice. We always have that option. Um, but for the 95% of Jews who would rather give up their lives rather than deny their Jewishness, it wasn't, it's, it wasn't even a question of a, a choice. It, it's like they had no choice. I'm a Jew. And the truth is every Jew has their point. Every Jew has their limit. Like you reach a certain point and they say, oh no, 
This is it. I'm a Jew, and no matter what happens, their stubbornness emerges, and their relentless and unyielding commitment. I'm a Jew, and that's it. I don't care what the consequences are. Burn me at the stake. Torture me. Kill me. It doesn't matter. I am a Jew, and nothing is going to shake my, deny, make me deny who I am. Everyone has a limit. Everyone has a point which they reach. The, how is it possible for us? You don't have to go to such extreme cases. You know, the Marilanskis of the world, I mean, every one of us. How is it, if being Jewish is so important to us that we're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice of our Jewishness in the moment of truth, how can we do anything that's not Jewish? How can we go against one single paragraph in the code of Jewish law? Every one of us should have been tzaddikim. How is it possible for us to say something wrong, or to think something wrong, or to, uh, to act, not to do the right thing? But the answer is, this is, this is called the human condition. It's called immaturity. As the Talmud says, a person doesn't sin unless he has a moment of insanity. Because the truth is, any sin is really a moment of insanity. Because we convince ourselves that we're good Jews. I'm a good Jew at heart. If you ask the majority of Jews, everyone will tell you, I'm a good Jew at heart. So I don't live a Jewish life, but I'm a good Jew at heart. I'm there. Israel's in need, I'm the first one. There. Now, of course, it makes no sense. If being Jewish is so important to you, when was the last time a person told you, my heart is healthy, so my, my hands are falling off and my feet are falling off, and I'm sick in every other organ in my body, but I'm, I'm, my heart is healthy. That's right, it's ridiculous, it's absurd. What do you mean your heart is healthy? You want every bone in your body to be healthy. You want every fingernail to be healthy, every toe. You don't compromise on one iota. So if you're being Jewish is so important, it's the heart of who you are, then you should live your Jewishness, express your Jewishness 24-7. But that's, that's the challenge that we have because that's the human condition, immaturity. We don't make a connection. We know vaguely, it's a fuzzy, vague feeling. We know subconsciously that being Jewish is the most important thing in my life. And during the Six-Day War, which we just celebrated the 40th anniversary, Jews came out of the closet in the millions. As Eloise all discussed it the other night. In a moment of truth, when they were expecting another holocaust in Israel, and they consecrated the graves in Tel Aviv, they were expecting 50,000 casualties, minimum. And suddenly, there was this awakening. Jews who haven't come, showed up in synagogue, even on Yom Kippur, they were so alienated, intermarried. In the moment of truth, they realized, they discovered that being Jewish is the most important thing in their life. He said, and this was a spark, the renaissance of Jews from Russia, all over the world, the whole Baal movement really took off after the 67 wars. Like Hashem was blowing the shofar and waking Jews up. So in the moment of truth, everyone realized that what I thought was have blue eyes and I'm Jewish. It's, a, it's an accident, a birth. It means nothing. It's irrelevant to my life. And suddenly they discovered it's the most important thing in their life. is the foundation of their life. And this created a whole turnaround. There were hundreds of thousands of young Jews who had no Jewish education and suddenly rediscovered their, their Yiddishkeit with a vengeance. So this is our nature. This is our core. It's our essence. But it's dormant. It's asleep. It's hidden. We're not in touch with it. But in the moment of truth, it comes roaring like a lion. It's there. The spark is there. The pilot is there. The potential is there. And even before we actualize the potential, you know who sees that potential at all times and at all places? The nunja. <laughs> God for sure but the non because the non is objective they see we forget 
They don't let us forget. They remind us. Don't, don't, don't kid us. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid us. You're self-hating Jew. You're more English than the English. No, 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 no. No, you're a Jew. <laughs> Mark your forehead. You're the Jew. You're the Israeli ac- academic who's so left-wing, who's more English than the English, who's more uh, anti-Israel than the biggest enemy that Israel has. You're a Jew. Don't forget who you are. Who are you kidding? Because they see objectively, they see honestly, they see through all the labels, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Atheist, Socialist, Communist. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. At the core, since everyone's human, that's why basically we sin, even though as Jews we have an advantage. But if you're a human being, you're going to do the wrong thing sometimes. And you once said a couple of months back that, that we need 10 of us, not like today gave some clothes and food to a homeless person, which I didn't know. But a lot of times, maybe myself or someone else skips doing the good deed that day or whatever. So it's hard to get 10 Jews or 10 anybody, but even 10 Jews that are so perfect that no shit. The reason why on the day of our Bar Mitzvah, which is such a joyous occasion, we become a man, we become an adult, responsible for the day of the Bat Mitzvah, and yet we say Tachanun. Usually on the day of a Simcha, the day of the Brits, the day of a wedding, you don't say, you don't make a confession. Yet the day of a Bar Mitzvah, you're entering into adulthood, into responsibility, and yet we say and we say the regular confession. And the uh, Rebbe gives a beautiful explanation because you want to tell the child, and the child may be overwhelmed, that I'm about to take upon myself 613 mitzvot, I'm human. Inevitably, I'm going to fail. So you tell the child, relax. The Torah is a program for real people. It's not a program for angels. Angels never sin, never stumble. It's a program for real people. Real people sin and stumble and sometimes we mess up really badly. I mean, we really hurt ourselves, really hurt our loved ones, the people we love most. And we really do very foolish things that we come to regret no end. It wasn't worth the pleasure that we had. It's not, it's not, it wasn't worth it. The momentary pleasure, it's not worth it. But instead of feeling lost and depressed and feeling worthless, Torah reminds us that we have a whole book of Leviticus, the central book in the Torah, sacrifices, repentance, to should return. You can change. It's never too late. You always get a second chance. You don't learn unless you stumble. One step back in order to take two steps forward. That's life. Life is movement. And sometimes even failing and stumbling is part of that movement, part of the growth. Unless the seed rots, you can't grow. The seed has to rot. And when the seed is so rotten that there's nothing left of the seed, you feel like a rotten, you're like, there's nothing left of you. At that moment, <laughs> that's the moment of growth. When you think it's all over, you're so confounded and confused and lost and, 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 and it's hopeless and you feel dark. and That's the moment that the brilliant flash enters your mind. Oh, now I got it. A whole new path opens up to you. A whole new direction. An exciting, unexpected revelation, startling revelation opens, opens up, a life opens up in a whole new direction. 
So that, that's growing pains. That's why Hashem created the world. You don't grow unless you lose your ego. And sometimes, sometimes a person could become very arrogant. Adam, Adam sinned. And there was, a, there was two Hasidic masters who were once discussing. And he says, you know, I could have stopped Adam from sinning. Because Adam's soul included all the Jewish souls. So he said, why didn't you stop him? He said, because he would have been so arrogant. <laughs> Look at my self-control. He says, I want him to be brokenhearted. Let him become, let him become human. Let him, become, let him feel what it feels like. Because there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. Hashem loves the broken heart. It's only when the Jews sin with the golden calf, the ultimate sin, the ultimate treachery, that they became worthy to receive the second set of tablets, which in a certain way was much more profound than the first set of tablets, in a certain sense. Gave us Yom Kippur. So there is, you know, that's life. Life is you make you stumble and you make egregious mistakes and terrible mistakes. But don't forget, it's only because you can make those terrible mistakes that when you do the right thing, it's so meaningful. If you could never really make a real, real mistake, a real beauty, you know, a real... You have no worry in this room. A real beauty. Everyone on their own level. Listen, we all have things we're all embarrassed of. Everyone has their skeletons in the closet. If you couldn't make a mistake that's a real beauty, then the good that you, did, that you do would be meaningless. It's only because you can really make a mistake, and then when you choose wisely to do the right thing, it's your choice. Look, look how, how wonderful it feels. Look how, what an accomplishment, what an achievement. It's something that you own and you, you, can, you can receive, you know, you can feel that you've earned the reward. And so that's why Hashem gave us the ultimate gift, the ultimate gift of freedom of choice. And He allows us to make these horrible mistakes. But it only, ultimately, it only makes us better and stronger and deeper more mature, more profound. But the potential is always there. And the fact that we can even sin also speaks of the Jewish soul. The fact that we could cause so much harm speaks of the Jewish soul. I mean, after all, who, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't like speaking negative, negatively about our brothers and sisters. But who introduced communism to the world? Who gave the world this wonderful gift and almost destroyed half of the, half of the world? So the fact that we can, on one hand, we can do so much harm, but on the other hand, look how much good we can do. Look how much goodness. Who introduced monotheism to the world? Who gave the world the prophets? Who gave the world? Who gave the world holiness? Concept of Hashem, concept of truth, a concept of absolute right and wrong, a belief that life is meaningful, life is not nihilistic, and that we come from somewhere and we have a destiny and we're going somewhere. The world has a goal and a theme and a purpose. We're aspiring, we're heading, we're journeying towards Mashiach. Life is a journey. And every human being plays an integral role. Jew as well as non-Jew plays an integral role in this, in this grand scheme of Hashem. This beautiful idea, this ennobling idea, inspiring idea. 
this all comes from the Jewish people. So the fact that, yes, we can really bring havoc and destruction. First the temple is destroyed, the second temple is destroyed, and exiles. But on the other hand, look at the miracles that the Jewish people have introduced. The Six-Day War was a miracle. The world was in awe of the Jews. The miracle of 76, 81. And um, so the fact that we can sin and we can mess up, it's only because when you're connected, when you're so connected, so everything that you do has an impact. It leaves an impression. You can't help but leave, leave an impression, have an impact. Four Jews changed the 20th century. Three Jews, right? Freud, Marx, Einstein. One Jew from his grave is still influencing two billion people. So the fact that we have the ability, Hashem chose the Jew to have such an impact on the world. Everything that we do has such an impact. Look at Israel. Even the, the English pseudo-intellectuals. Look what's going on in Darfur. Look what's going on all over the world. Not a peeps, not a sound. <laughs> Israel singled out. You can hardly find Israel on the map. There are hardly any Jews in the world. We're 0.002% of the world population. 14 million out of six And, I mean, they're right, 14 million Jews. As we speak, there's a billion Chinese. As we speak, there's another million. But in India. <laughs> <but laughs> Overnight, there's been a blackout. But, and yet the Jew, look at the focus of the Jew. The Jew never left the front pages. The only thing you get the UN to agree on when it comes to Israel. Unanimous. So, so... 0.2%, it, 1 in 500. 0.2%. So, so the impact, the impact that the Yid has, because the Yid is so plugged in and so connected, because we have that divine wisdom, we have that divine sense of the divine of the infinite, and it's pure, and it's unadulterated, and we see Hashem the way Hashem sees Himself. And there's a certain egolessness that's in the Jew, which really permeates every aspect of the Jew. That's why the Jews are the most compassionate people in the world, disproportionately. So why is it the Gentile, that is a good Gentile, that has wisdom, what is the explanation you know, for his soul? Why is he distant from Hashem? You mean like a righteous person? Again, we have to understand, what we're, we're discussing here is something that's it, it's inexplicable. That's why he calls it natural. Nature is inexplicable. Everything else is, is explicable. The fact that you're motivated by self-preservation and everything is egotistically motivated, that's normal. That's logical. That makes sense. And it could take many forms. It could be the motivation to become religious, to become mystical, to become one with the universe. That's all, that's all explicable. But the Jew, even the angel doesn't understand the Jew. It's not just the anti-Semite that doesn't understand it, that, that doesn't get the Jew. The angels do don't get the Jew. Because the Jew is a phenomenon that's inexplicable. It's nature. It's inexplicable. It's one thing that you want to become godly and godlike. You want to lead a meaningful life. You want to lead a noble life. You want to lead an eternal life. You want to plug into eternity. You know, a substantial life. But to, to lose yourself, to sacrifice your soul, it's called Mesidat Nefesh. To lose your ego, lose your identity, what Avram was ready to do, to lose everything. For what? For when? For where? Not to bow down to idols and you're ready to give up your life and we love life. For what? What purpose? What end? 
I'm not looking for anything. I don't want anything. It's a selfless love. I'm not asking for anything in return. It's just God-centered. I just want to do... What does Hashem want from me? That's my motivation in life. I have no other motivation. It's, it's humanly impossible. Because everything has to ultimately be motivated by ego. A refined ego. An elevated ego. That's absent in the Jew. And what? That would be absent in the Jew. No, that the Jew... Right. No, the Jew, well, on, we, have, we have healthy egos as well. <laughs> I, I wish it were absent. As a matter of fact, it, maybe it's commensurate. The more self-nullification we have, we also have the balance. Maybe we have a little extra egos. <laughs> but the idea that we see, we have the divine wisdom and we're able to see God and we're able to sense God on God's terms, not on our terms, not on the human terms. To totally see and sense and recognize that this is God's world. And even if it makes no sense to us, and it's totally inexplicable to us, everything is Hashem. Life is Hashem, existence is Hashem. There's nothing but Hashem. There's no other reality. Nothing else really exists. The sense that nothing exists but God. Not only there's no other God, not only there's no other power, not only there's no other force, but literally nothing really exists but God. There is nothing else. This is... It's impossible for any created being to truly sense this. So for the Gentile, for example, it's a manufactured thought process. For the Jew, it's very inherent. It's natural. Inexplicable and natural. And we don't need, we don't need explanation. Did God take away the tablets for us so that we would appreciate it more? Because when you lose something, or like you're losing your health, you're so happy when you get back. You know? we, we caused it because, you know, because we sinned so egregiously. So the tablets had to be shattered but that was a reflection but the Jewish heart was also shattered and that enabled them to be able to receive the second tablets which were much more profound in a certain sense much deeper and the only one who doesn't appreciate this quality is us the non-Jew sees it in the Jew and when the Jew is in touch with it the non-Jew is in awe of it admires it when Jews are unified when Jews are one and united with the envy of the world the world is in awe of us but when a Jew forgets when a Jew forgets that he's Jewish and a Jew thinks that he's just ordinary and just like anyone else and is more English than the English and more German than the German that evokes anti-Semitism in the worst way because we're lying to them we're lying to ourselves and we're lying to them and they don't buy it for a moment because they know that we have a Jewish soul and we stood at Sinai and we have a Torah and we have the blueprint and we have a truth an absolute truth an ultimate truth and our goal and mission in life is really to be the teachers of the world to be the conscience of the world And when the teacher forgets that he's a teacher and pretends to be one of the students, the students despise the teacher. They can't, they can't, as it is the students hate the teacher. Because the teacher is disciplining them, the teacher is forcing them very unnaturally. But then they grow up and they realize the teacher is their best friend. Because the teacher is teaching them skills in life, how to appreciate life. Inevitably, that's the world of Mashiach. The nations of the world will grow up and realize that the Jew is their best friend, that the, these are the values that the Jews have been 
teaching for 3,800 years a belief in one God, in an absolute God, a belief in an absolute truth, a belief in absolute values and realities and truth and right and wrong and good and evil and the seven Noahide laws. This is the only decent way to live. To really live a wholesome life. To fully develop your God-given potential. Every human being is created in the image of God in order to fully develop your potential, divine, God-given potential, to be moral, ethical, and spiritual, this is the only decent way to live. And we see that today. Look at the non-Jews, the religious Christians in America, how much they respect the Jews. And in the halls of Congress, there's a tremendous respect today for, for Jews. Because they're realizing the Jewish message from Adana on down, everyone wants to learn Kabbalah, learn Torah, connect to something Jewish. So the world today is realizing that the Jewish message is a beautiful, wonderful message. They're growing up and they're realizing that the teacher is their best friend. The problem is not the problem is us. When the teacher forgets that he's a teacher. When Israel pretends that we're just a little tiny country and we're begging to be accepted and to be treated equally. And we have, what's the backlash? The worst anti-Semitism since Hitler is boycott of academicians in England. And it only gets worse and worse. Because they want the teacher to be a teacher. You're not one of us. Don't pretend you're just one of us. Who are you kidding? You're the conscience of the world. You have that Jewish soul. You have that divine spark. You stood at Sinai. You have the Torah. You have the blueprint. You, have the, you are the teacher. Teach. We're open today. They're not shoving Jews into ovens anymore. Today, the world is wel welcomes the Jewish message. If only the Jew had the courage of their conviction to stand up and to speak up as a Jew and to speak decisively and to lead by personal example, the world will give us a standing ovation. That's the world we live in today. It's a different world. The war is over. We have to tell all the self-hating Jews. <laughs> the war is over. It's a different world today. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Be proud. Live a godly life. Live a holy life. Be proud of your Torah. You're 3,800 years old. We're the most classical people in the face of the world. And we, all this time, we never left the front pages. We've survived, like no other nation on earth, survived Hitler's and pogroms and the Holocaust and destruction. And we're just as youth as fresh as, as we were then. The eternal Jew hasn't changed one iota. We haven't lost one iota of our freshness, of our vigor, of our strength. It's a different world. The world is over. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be apologetic. You don't have to be embarrassed. Just be. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. Be natural. You know, when someone is natural in the office, everyone feels comfortable around them. They may be overweight. They may be this. They may be that. But they feel natural. They make everyone around them feel comfortable. When someone feels unnatural, they make everyone around them crazy. <laughs> they make everyone feel unnatural. They don't feel comfortable in their own skin. The problem today is not the nunges. We have to feel natural in our own skin. We have to be proud of our being Jewish. And if we're proud of being Jewish, and it's not about ego, it's not about arrogance, not in an arrogant way. We're smarter, we're better. That's, that's not what being Jewish is about. On the contrary, the whole essence of being Jewish is there is no arrogance, there is no ego. It's not about me. We're God-centered instead of being ego-centered. So the pride, Jewish pride, is not about an egotistical arrogance. On the contrary, the whole essence of Jewish pride is a divine pride. It's not about ego, it's not about I. So if we, if we have that pride, 
the world is, is hungry for it. Who's going to lead the world today out of its darkness? The challenges that we faced. The Jew is, was chosen to be the leader of the world. It's not our choice. God chose the Jewish people to lead the world, spiritually, morally, ethically, spiritually. And to communicate the Torah and communicate the seven Noahide laws to all the nations of the world. That's our privilege and our responsibility. And the world today welcomes that message. It is hungry for that message. And it's waiting for the Jew to step up. Speak like a Jew. Act like a Jew. Proudly. Forcefully. Coherently. Intelligently. There's, there's, no, there's no more beautiful concept than the concept of the chosen people. But the Jew was chosen to connect the world with Hashem. To connect the world with Godliness. To bring Godliness into this world. To transform the world. To elevate the world. And anti-Semitism is just a reminder from the world. Jew, get your act together. <laughs> Stop pretending. You're not one of us, you never will be. You're the chosen people. You're a nation of prophets. You're a holy people. You're a nation of priests. You have that divine spark. You have the Torah. Speak up. It's not enough to speak Hebrew. But the content is non-Jewish. We want Jewish content. Jewish pride. Jewish dignity. Truth. Courage. Strength. And that's the... But all of this comes natural to the Jew. This is called Teva. It's inexplicable. But it's the most natural thing for us. Because that's who we are. That's the Neshama. The Jewish Neshama. Okay... Nature is an applied term for anything that is not in the realm of reason and comprehension. Here too, with regard to the soul's desire to unite with its source, the inference of the word nature is that the soul's will and desire is not based on reason, knowledge and intelligence that can be understood, but rather is beyond the grasp and comprehension of rational intelligence. For this nature is the soul's faculty of Chochmah and, as discussed in the previous chapter, Chachma is a faculty that transcends comprehension, a faculty wherein the light of the blessed Ein Sof abides. And as a result, the soul is drawn to its source, the Ein Sof, with a longing beyond comprehension. Just like everything is drawn towards its source, when you drop something, it's, it's drawn downwards, the force of gravity pulls it downwards. Um, and it's also, it's inexplicable. No one could explain gravity. But it's a description. That's just the way it is. Everything is pulled towards its source. And so too, the neshama, it's a gravitational pull. The neshama, which comes from Hashem, is pulled upwards, is yearning, aspiring to go upwards. Thus we see that the nature of the hidden love, that is, its quest, is the longing of the soul to be united with its source. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain the designation hidden love. Now this is a general principle in the whole realm of holiness. Holiness, Kedusha, is only that which derives from Chachmah, called Kodesh Elyon, supernal holiness. The word Kodesh refers to Chachmah, while Kedusha refers to any manifestation of holiness as derived from Chachmah. As Chachmah represents nullification of self before God, 
Only those matters that manifest this character of Chachmah may be said to possess holiness. Those matters in which this characteristic is lacking lack holiness as well. This is unique to Judaism, our understanding of holiness, of goodness and holiness is a revolutionary concept that doesn't exist in any culture. Holiness is connected with Hashem. But what does it mean? It means not only the belief that there's only one God and not two gods, or that God is the supreme being, the omnipotent, the omniscient, and God is the only power and force and drive behind everything. Or that God is like the soul to the body, just like our bodies have a soul and energy. And without the soul, of course, nothing happens in the body without the soul. So too, God is the soul of the world, and nothing happens in this world without the soul. Of course, you can't see your soul, you can't hear your soul. But nevertheless, everything is a soul. The soul is what moves, and it's much deeper than that. Holiness is the reality, the awareness that there is nothing but God. Nothing exists. The world is not even like a body to God's, and God is the soul. All there is is God. There is nothing else. There's nothing other than God. This is incomprehensible to us. It's incomprehensible. It's illogical. What do you mean there's nothing other than God? There's you, there's I, there's the world around us. There's a huge bureaucracy. We live, we live in a pluralistic world, a multiplicity of existence, thousands of species, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Innumerable angels. Every angel is unique, its own character. What do you mean there's nothing but God? And simultaneously, God creates everything. And at the same time, the truth is, from God's point of view, there's nothing but God. All there is is God. This is really incomprehensible. It's inexplicable. Not to the religious mind, not to the meditative mind. And yet, this is something that every Jew knows. It's a wisdom. It's intuition. It's a sense that every Jew has. And knows it with every fiber of his being and every bone in his body. That there's nothing, no other reality but God. And that is the definition of holiness. Definition of holiness is the recognition that all there is is God. There's no other reality but God. Anything that's other than that, it automatically is called the sitra akhra, the other side. In other words, you can have a very religious person. And he's thinking about God all day. But he's thinking about God in a logical way. Understands God, comprehends God. Because he knows that if something exists, there has to be an original cause. Nothing, nothing just happens by accident, right? If someone told you that the Empire State Building came as a result, there was one morning, there was a whole bunch of brick and wires were lying around, there was a big explosion, and suddenly, in the blink of an eye, you turn around, and you have elevators, and you have floors, and you have decoration, and everything, and the furniture, everything is there. Right? That's absurd. <laughs> Even though uh, so-called intelligent people believe it, that's what happened in the universe. There was a big bang, and suddenly it just, it just happened, everything. You know, you think the Empire State Building is complex. It's, it's, it's nothing in comparison to the complexity of the human body. The human body is made of millions of components, the atoms, billions of atoms. 
And all of this just happened. Oh, it, just, it was a big bang and it just... <laughs> it's absurd. It's absurdity. It's an insult to an intelligence. If someone told you that Shakespeare was written by a monkey that sat at a typewriter, you, you would be insulted. Well, the world is infinitely more complex than Shakespeare. So for someone not to believe in the original cause, it, it's, it's an insult to intelligence. So anyone who's intelligent, who's genuinely intelligent, like the Aristotles of the world, the Plato's of the world, who were genuinely, who had a native intelligence. We can't say the same for many people who consider themselves intelligent, pseudo-intellectuals. But anyone who's genuinely intelligent, who has a native intelligence, innate intelligence, of course, you see a building, you know there's a builder. You see a book, you know there's an author. It doesn't take a tremendous, it's not a question of faith. You have to have faith to believe that this beautiful painting just happened, oh, someone poured some ink and it just, it just came out beautifully, exquisite. That's an insult to a devil. That takes blind faith. To believe in God is common sense. It's logical. It's rational. Your body is alive. You know you have a soul. I've never seen this soul. So. You know without the soul, nothing happens. This body is a corpse. Ultimately, this into it. So of course the world has a soul. Of course there's meaning. Of course there's intelligence. There's, there's a cause. So to believe in God is logical. You don't have to suppress. You don't have to transcend your ego, transcend your I, transcend your identity to believe in God. On the contrary, it enhances your I. It amplifies your I. Then you become a genuine I, genuinely intelligent, genuinely in touch with reality, with truth and reality. Of course there's intelligence in the universe. And of course the world is pulsating with life. There's a soul. That's logical. That's rational. For that, you don't need faith. So that has nothing to do with holiness. So what we call religion and mysticism, from a Jewish perspective, that's not holy. That's not holy. Holiness has a unique definition. The definition of holiness is that there's no other reality but God. Not that God is the original cause and we are the effect. God is the great something and we are the miniature God, the miniature something. God is the soul and we're the body. It's much deeper than that. There is no other reality than God. We're nothing. All there is is God. I am nothing. It's inexplicable. We have it's illogical. It makes no sense. Yes, but my entire existence is nothing other than God. What can I do? For I'm just an expression of God. And what's my motivation in life? There's no ego. There's no agendas. There's no physical agenda. There's no spiritual agendas. The sheer in the world to come. Not the sheer in the world to come. It's not about I. It's about what can I do for Akhtar? It's an end in itself. It's God-centered. This is something that's inexplicable. And yet for a Jew, this comes natural. This is who we are. We have a Jewish soul. Our Jewish soul is motivated by ego. Even when it comes to kindness, the, the kindness that comes from the Jewish soul, it's not about I. I want that this kindness should, should happen. If, it, if I'll have the merit, it'll come through me. And if not, if it'll benefit the cause that it shouldn't come from me. It's not about me. The thing should get done. That person needs to be helped. I heard a beautiful story that uh, a very philanthropic Jew in London, Bobby Vogel, and uh, I know him well. He used to come to the visit the Rebbe. He used to stay at our house. He was very, very lo- beloved and popular. May soul rest in peace in London. And he um, was very generous. He was in the diamond business. 
and he noticed as the community matured that many of the young people, yeshiva students, didn't have a job, you know, couldn't earn a living and support their families. And he had an idea, he says, maybe you should open a school where they can learn part-time and then learn how to polish diamonds. So they can make a nice, honest, comfortable living. So he, when he, one of his visits to New York, he asked the Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe, he says, what do you think? And he said, that, I, want to, I want to make it like, like a Chabad vocational school, like they have in Kfar Chabad. In Israel, they have a Chabad vocational school. We'll make it a Chabad vocational school. The Rebbe says, Chas v'shol, God forbid. He's taken aback. Why not? He says, if you're going to call it a Chabad vocational school, there's going to be a Satmer who doesn't like Chabad. But he won't feel comfortable. So you're going to, are you going to deprive him from a living because you're calling it Chabad? Can you imagine? The Rebbe's chassid, <laughs> probably motivated by everything he's been taught by the Rebbe, and the Tanya, and Hasidus. An act of selflessness, and the Rebbe wasn't thinking about, it's good for me, it's good for the causes. That person needs help. What are you doing to help him? Forget about it. If it's better for him, don't mention my name, don't mention my name, just help him. Forget about anything. It was the idea that you don't love a Jew in order to bring him close to Judaism. On the contrary, it's because you love him. That's why you bring him close to Judaism. The love is unconditional. And if the person's not interested in Judaism, I still love him. Unconditional. And if I can help him physically, I'll help him physically. If I can. It's, not a, it's not an agenda. I'm not, there's no agenda here. Oh, I'm, I'm being very nice because I want you to stop putting on the film. No, no, there's no agendas. It's egoless. It's not about I. There's no ego, there's no agendas. This is inexplicable. This is Jewish love. This is the Jewish neshama. It's God-centered. It's not about I. If I'll have the merit and this kindness can come through me, I'll have I. But if not, as long as it gets done, I'm happy. As long as the person will be helped. What do I care? It's not about... This is, this is unique. This is special. This doesn't exist anywhere in the universe. This is, this is the ultimate level of Jewish love. Holy love. This is holiness. This is the definition of holiness. Selflessness. It's not about I. I don't expect anything in return. It's, it's about you. It's for Hashem's sake. Even though I, I will be absorbed, I will be lost in the process. Totally transcend my ego. There won't be any I. It's fine. Self-sacrifice. Sacrificing your soul. Not about sacrificing your body in order to get a bigger share in the world to come. To become an important and uh, an eternal I. It's not about I. The Baal Shem Tov lost the share in the world to come and he cried out with joy. He says, fine, perfect. Now I can serve God altruistically. Knowing that I'm not getting any reward. It's not about anything else, just because I love Hashem and I want to serve. Nothing else. Of course, a voice came down from heaven right a moment later. He says, you just got back. <laughs> You're in the world to come. To be continued.